Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. This is the second in an ongoing series that I have titled informally Sentencing Commission Confidential, and it's also a companion piece to an earlier podcast where I talked about compliance officer independence from the perspective of the Department of Justice. question today is, do the guidelines require an independent compliance and ethics officer? The term compliance officer or compliance and ethics officer, chief ethics and compliance officer, none of these terms actually make it into the text of the sentencing guidelines. What we see there is a description of a role. That role is specific, and it is found in Section 8B 2.1 Sub B Sub 2 Sub C of the Chapter 8 of the Sentencing Guidelines, and it reads, specific individuals within the organization shall be delegated day-to-day operational responsibility for the compliance and ethics program. Individuals with operational responsibility shall report periodically to high-level personnel and, as appropriate, to the governing authority or appropriate subgroup of the governing authority on the effectiveness of the compliance and ethics program. To carry out such operational responsibility, such individuals shall be given adequate resources, appropriate authority, and direct access to the governing authority. That's a mouthful, so let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, we have to identify specific individuals. In other words, if you have a chief compliance officer and they are responsible for the day-to-day operational responsibility of the compliance and ethics program, then that's who we're talking about. But oftentimes, we have organizations where somebody who is called the chief ethics and compliance officer may also be the general counsel or may also be the chief auditor or may be overseeing such a large program that they're not necessarily responsible for the day-to-day operational responsibility for the program. So in those cases, there's probably somebody else, or as the guidelines contemplate, individuals, so could be plural, could be more than one, that have the day-to-day operational responsibility. Titles don't necessarily matter. And again, The guidelines don't say chief compliance officer. They don't even say compliance officer. And it may be that the person with this responsibility in a small enough organization doesn't even have compliance in their title. They could be the chief of HR. They could be the head auditor or general counsel. In small organizations, that's often the case. So titles really don't matter. It's what they actually do on a day-to-day basis that really matters. The second point really speaks to this notion of independence. The guideline standards don't suggest independence in the sense that a compliance officer needs to report directly to the board of directors or governing authority. We see that in the second part of this section 8B2.1B2C, where the guidelines suggest that that person or persons with the operational responsibility report periodically to either high-level personnel and, as appropriate, to the governing authority or appropriate subgroup of the governing authority. That would probably be the audit committee or compliance committee of the board of directors, but it can vary, obviously, depending on the structure and makeup of your organization. So when we're talking about independence, there is 
independence of ability to have access, but not necessarily complete independence where the individual is not reporting to anyone but the board. That is something that we see more and more of where you have a completely independent compliance function that may or may not report to the CEO or chief legal counsel or general counsel directly, or they may report to somebody within the chain of command at the executive level for purposes of evaluation and pay, hiring and firing, but report to the board on a quarterly basis on the operation of the program. So in those cases, you will see some independence in the fact that the compliance officer reports to the board on their job responsibilities, the operation of the program. But for the purposes of their performance and their hiring and firing and pay and such, uh, reports through the general chain of command. That seems to be fairly common. The guidelines don't look down on that and don't suggest that there needs to be any particular organizational chain of command for a compliance officer. To a great extent, what we see here at work and generally speaking in the hallmarks of an effective program that are enshrined in the sentencing guidelines is a flexibility to allow organizations to determine individually how they want to structure their programs, what kind of responsibilities they want to give individuals within their organizations. And it recognizes through that flexibility that organizations are structured differently, are different, have different sizes, have different footprints, and not one size will obviously fit all. So if not complete independence for the function or for the individual responsible for the day-to-day -day operation of the program, let's look at the last part of this section of 8B2.1B2C that talks about the responsibility, because that's how it's characterized in the uh, sentencing guidelines, is that this is a responsibility for the individual or individuals. And to carry out that responsibility, the guidelines state that they shall be given adequate resources, appropriate authority, and direct access to the governing authority or appropriate subgroup of the governing authority. So that's three things. One, resources. So budget, uh, available bodies if necessary to carry out the operational responsibility. Appropriate authority. So the ability to make the decisions that are necessary to carry out an effective program. And lastly, to let direct access to the governing authority or appropriate subgroup. That often means the subcommittee or committee of the board of directors that has oversight of the program. While you don't gain necessarily complete independence or see that the guidelines suggest that complete independence is necessary, what you do see are some aspects of independence for sure. And let's focus a little bit on that last piece, the access, because the guidelines are a little bit more specific about this. And I think this is an area where oftentimes organizations aren't quite as clear as the guidelines are. In the sentencing guidelines, there are application notes that apply to all the various sections. And there is an application note for this section, application of subsection B2, to be specific. Uh, you sentencing nerds out there are probably loving all of this detail on the sections. If the specific individual assigned overall 
responsibility for the compliance and ethics program does not have day-to-day operational responsibility for the program, then the individual with day-to-day operational responsibility for the program should, no less than annually, give the governing authority and or appropriate subgroup thereof information on the implementation and effectiveness of the compliance and ethics program. That says very specifically that if the person who's perhaps designated the chief compliance officer or has overall responsibility for the program, but is not that day-to-day operational person, that person obviously is, can have access and discussion with the board of directors about the operation of the program. But the person with the day-to-day responsibility, whether it's the chief compliance officer or somebody else, must no less than annually give the governing authority or appropriate subgroup information on the implementation and effectiveness of the compliance and ethics program. Now, what does that mean? Well, to me, that's pretty specific. And it states that at least on an annual basis, the people that are person or persons that are responsible for the operation of the program should be providing information. Now, if you read just that section, sounds like when you say provide information, that information could still be provided by another third party, nominally the chief compliance officer or general counsel or chief auditor or whomever is communicating directly with the board. But you have to read that in conjunction with another part of the sentencing guidelines that is often overlooked. And I think this is where some organizations have maybe missed some nuance. Now, when you look at section 8C 2.5F, 3C, (laughs) and this is under effective compliance and ethics program, talking about the mitigation credit that an organization will get if they get the credit for having an effective ethics and compliance program should they be sentenced. There is some more nuance here about what those responsibilities are. Under this section, it says the individual or individuals with operational responsibility for the compliance and ethics program have direct reporting obligations to the governing authority or appropriate subgroup. Now, that is defined further in application note 11 of 8C 2.5F by stating that an individual has, quote, direct reporting obligations to the governing authority of an appropriate subgroup if the individual has express authority to communicate personally to the governing authority or appropriate subgroup thereof on A, promptly any matter involving criminal conduct or potential criminal conduct, and B, no less than annually on the implementation and effectiveness of the compliance and ethics program. This is much more specific than the other section that we were talking about. This states that the person with the direct reporting obligation, so the person with the day-to-day responsibility of the program, has to have expressed authority. And in other words, it has to be written down or understood that that person has the authority to go to the board or the governing authority of the organization in two circumstances. One, if there's a matter involving criminal conduct or potential criminal conduct, so a fail-safe, if you will, if something was really going off the rails, and no less than annually on the implementation and effectiveness of the compliance and ethics program. What this application note and this discussion seems to suggest is that if you are the person responsible for the day-to-day operation of the program and you provide information that does get forwarded on to the board of directors, but you are not the one 
personally communicating this, that might be at odds with the letter and spirit of the sentencing guideline standards for who is responsible for making those reports. I would suggest that many organizations have a structure where, particularly if there's a dual hat individual who is perhaps general counsel, chief compliance officer, and responsible for five other things, that that person probably is not responsible in some cases for the day-to-day operation. They could be, particularly in smaller organizations. But oftentimes, I think we have a situation where somebody is not responsible for the day-to-day operations. They're gathering information from their team, and often in good faith. Uh, So there's nothing nefarious going on. But if the person or persons that are actually responsible for the day-to-day operation aren't involved in direct reporting to the board about the operation of the program, then that doesn't seem to meet the standard that is laid out, at least not in 8C 2.5 and the application notes therein. So while the sentencing guidelines do not call for a completely independent individual responsible for the compliance and ethics program, somebody who doesn't report to anybody within the chain of command, for example, for purposes of their pay packet and purposes of being hired and fired. It does, however, set out some very specific independent responsibilities, or as the guidelines say, direct reporting obligations for that individual. And so while the sentencing guidelines leaves it up to the individual organization to determine what their structure and operation is going to look like, the responsibilities of the person or persons who are responsible for the day-to-day operation of the program is pretty specific. And I would encourage everybody to take a look at those responsibilities. Who has them? And do they have the appropriate access, the appropriate resources that the guidelines speak to? If you have a question you want answered on the podcast, be sure to submit it on compliancebeat.com. Now here's the upshot. The upshot this week is take a close look at who's responsible for what. Do the person or persons with the day-to-day responsibility for the operation of your program have the appropriate authority and resources and access to do their job? In practical terms, this might mean that individuals within the organization that have day-to-day responsibilities for the program who haven't previously had access or direct reporting responsibilities to the board periodically have the ability to report either on aspects or on operation of the program. Interjecting diversity in reporting to the board of directors is not a bad thing. It's worth considering. Today, we have three questions with Jennifer Badgley. Jennifer is Director of Compliance and Ethics for Primera Blue Cross, where she has worked for the past five years. She started her career in the internal audit at Bank of America and spent several years working in the audit and quality assurance fields in the health insurance industry before switching to compliance. Jennifer is a graduate of the University of Washington and holds several certifications. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Eric. Jennifer, can you talk a little bit about your career journey? How did you end up in your current role? Sure. Well, like a lot of people, it was kind of by accident. When I was in college, I originally thought I wanted to be a nurse. 
Thank goodness I realized that I don't like taking orders from doctors or cleaning up other people's messes before I got too far down that path. Instead, I graduated with a degree in business administration with a concentration in accounting. And I went on, as you had said in the introduction, to work in Bank of America's internal audit department. I really liked internal audit because you're able to work with a lot of different areas of the company and every day you're doing something different. However, I never really liked the facts that you always had to keep a really firm dividing line between yourself and your customers. You, you couldn't really help them because you always had to make sure that you didn't impact your independence so that you could continue to audit them. After several years in internal audit, I switched to more of a quality assurance role and became the manager of, quality, of the quality improvement team at Primera Blue Cross, a health insurance company. This team was responsible for the monthly claims, customer service, and enrollment audits. So I was really able to understand the core of the health insurance business and get down into the weeds. Again, another disadvantage of internal audit is you're usually auditing at a much higher level and you don't get to get into the details very often. After a brief stint back in internal audit, I was laid off. And that's when I first entered the world of compliance. The job market was very tight at the time, and there really weren't a lot of opportunities in internal audit, but I was seeing a lot of compliance jobs. That's when I really started to research compliance and understand what it meant to work in that field. And thankfully, I was able to obtain a position pretty quickly with Group Health as their compliance and regulatory support manager. And that's when I fell in love with compliance. Compliance is really similar to internal audit. You get to see a lot of areas of the company, and every day you're doing something different. However, I think there's one major advantage to working in compliance. You really get to be more of a partner to your customers. You don't have to worry so much about being independent. After less than a year with Group Health, my old boss from Primera asked me to interview for my current position. It really is who you know that helps you get to where you are today. So as Eric had said, I am now the Director of Compliance and Ethics at Primera Blue Cross. I love being able to work closely with my customers and help ensure they're compliant and they act ethically in all that they do. And you draw a distinction that I've heard before between the role of internal audit and compliance. And the one thing that I've heard about internal audit before is that they're sometimes seen as the, the cops, all right, descending, right. descending in, in into a situation. And you, you mentioned that you feel like you're, for lack of a better term, more, more collaborative when you're right. coming from a compliance role. Do you ever worry that compliance might be seen as the cops? And, and how do you kind of guard against that? Oh, definitely. That is always a risk. I mean, when we're coming in, we, we basically are still doing audits in the compliance department when we do monitoring and auditing. So there are times where we are delivering bad news, where we've found something where we're not compliant with the law or our regulation. But I think the difference is, is we're able to really work with the business and help them improve their processes. We don't have to just kind of drop the finding and then walk away and yeah. let it be someone else's problem to fix it. We can actually help them fix it. So not only collaborative on the front end, but collaborative on the back end as well. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's a good point. Now, if you could go back in time before you undertook this role in compliance at Primera and tell yourself one piece of advice, what would that one thing be? Well, you know, I'd have to say, don't be afraid of failure. You know, like a lot of people, I was always striving to be top of the class, get all A's, rise up the corporate ladder, be the best I could be. You know, as a result, I was usually fairly conservative and not much of a risk taker. Well, that's generally a good thing for people who work in the compliance department. I think it can also be a negative. If you don't take a lot of risks, you also don't necessarily learn and grow, and you never really get a chance to get better or experience different things. So I have to say, going back and looking how I got here, I'm getting laid off was one of my biggest fears, but it actually was the turning point in my career that brought me to compliance. I, I might never have gotten into compliance if that hadn't happened, and I've really found a job that I love and I enjoy. 
I think not being afraid of failure also helps people who work in compliance. As you had just asked me about, Eric, um, we often have to tell people they can't do things or that they're doing things wrong in our role. And that can be challenging, especially if you're talking to people who are in higher level positions than you are. You know, sometimes people are great and the message is well received and people want to make sure they're doing the right thing. But other times there might be some gray areas and room for interpretation and people can be argumentative. I think you need to just not be afraid. Don't view that as failure, I guess. Instead, just look at it as an opportunity to change your communication style and really partner with your customers. Yeah. Being fearless. Uh, that's that's uh, that's hard to learn, but can be invaluable. Exactly. Now, lastly, if you could look into your compliance and ethics crystal ball over the next few years, what are one or two trends that you see being very important in the field? Well, I don't know if it's necessarily unique to compliance and ethics, but what I'm seeing in the health insurance industry in particular are the impact corporate budgets are having on things. We are struggling here. A part of it is due to all the increased regulation, but we haven't been profitable for the past couple of years. And so this kind of creates a little bit of a strain on being able to do the right thing as well as being financially responsible. Of course, all of our companies want to do the right thing, but you also have to make sure that you are doing it as effectively and efficiently as possible. And as the government keeps coming up with more and more regulations, I think that makes it challenging because you need to find that balance between how do you ensure you're compliant, but you're also doing it in a way that isn't spending your customers' money foolishly also. Yeah, and I think as a result of that, a lot of companies are having to go to downsizing. And while I think there's always opportunities to look at things with fresh eyes and do things more efficiently and effectively, I think downsizing creates some risks because people could, I think it can increase misconduct. People either may start feeling they're entitled to things because maybe they're not getting the raises they used to get in the past or the recognition they used to get, or I think people are just overworked and they can make sloppy mistakes or they have to cut corners and they just don't have time to double check things like they used to in the past. I also think when times are tight, companies may not want to spend the time or the money on things such as general compliance training. There might be a tendency for the execs to assume, well, everybody knows we still expect them to do the right thing. But when times are tough, I don't know that you want to assume that people understand what it is you want them to do. I mean, you just need to read the headlines and see that there's often a lot of miscommunication out there or people that you wouldn't think would ever have gone down the path that they did, but they did. No, the headlines are are guidance of things not to do, and we get a lot of that day in, day out. (laughs) Exactly. That's a perfect lesson out there is to read the headlines. Jennifer, I I can't thank you enough for spending a little bit of time with us and answering our three questions today. Well, I appreciate this opportunity, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.